John Carter's Earth? Yes. John Carter. Rated PG-13. In theaters and IMAX 3D March 9th. What is the greatest film ever made? Have a guess. The Dolce Vita. Con Air. What's Vanishing Point? It's just one of the best American movies ever made. Bruce Campbell is the greatest actor of his generation. Phantom Menace is the best Star Wars yet. I like Spider-Man. I mean, that's me living my best life. If I could, if I could do stilt work, fuck, I'd go around the office all day doing that. Oh, Cody, you would have a long, storied career on stilts. I'm sure of that. Yeah, and then you'd be like beat up by Batman. Gotta do whatever it takes to pay the bills. Just imagine if you were that tall, like on stilts, and you were in an office. You just peek over all the cubes, like, "What you working on, Johnson? Mm, looks like Facebook." Stilt your way across the room while he's embarrassed. Stilt your way across the room. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're, you've already got a pitch for it. I think I think you're falling in love with the idea. Stilt you mean I could be stilt man as a regional director? I like how your thing of being on stilts is fucking just peeking over tall areas at people and then running away. No, no, just imagine like I could go into grocery stores and just pick things off the top shelf where they keep the good stock that's not been fondled by all the children. We should start the episode now. I wish I had stilt powers. All right, you guys ready? I'm good, Cody. I mean, I love talking about the very tall, but... Too tall to live. No, it's not true! My heart! <laughs> That's my impression of every Great Dane. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, deep-cut nature reference, Cody. <laughs> All right, I, I swear I'm, I'm ready now to actually host the show. Virginia! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. More than that, though, tonight it's Martians, Barsoom, Tharx, Therns, Brian Cranston auditioning for the role of the KFC colonel, and way more than I can say in just one sentence without sounding like a lunatic. Oh, God, so much more. Anyways, I'm your host, Cody. Joining me are my co-hosts and own personal Mark Strong's, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I'm a cosmic dick. Agreed. And Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. K.O.R. Cody. Originally, I was going to introduce you 30 minutes into the episode, after I introduced Mike, just to imitate the movie and how it can't stop throwing goddamn plot and lore into the film well (laughs) past the first act. That's the magic of serialized pulp, Cody. You never know when it's going to stop throwing shit at you. Never. Never. John Carter will never stop. (laughs) You hear that? John dies at the end? Oh, Oh, that just made me sad we didn't... Don't don't bring me back there. I I would like a John dies at the end, too. We always have the books, though. I just want more of Clancy Brown. <laughs> Who doesn't? That guy's great. Good night, everybody. That's all I wanted to say. I just wanted to shit on John Carter a little bit and talk about Clancy Brown being super oh, cool. Going back to Mark Strong and John Carter, is it me or those outfits of the cosmic dicks really fucking comfortable looking? Like, you just want to oh, sleep they're, in them? They're like yeah. quantum snuggies. I want one so bad. That That's like prime micro plush, but fluffier. Hmm. You know that scene in Demolition Man where the car crashes and it fills up with foam? It's th- it's that. Like, you can just go to sleep. Like, you just want to throw yourself off a cliff and it's so comfortable you'll survive and go to sleep. And it's always, like, perfectly wrinkled. Like, it's chiseled out of marvel. You know how you go into, like, Target and they have those weighted blankets that are supposed to reduce anxiety? These feel like the Martian technology that perfected that. Like, you put that on, it's like, oh, it's gone. It's squished out of me. <laughs> That's why they're the gods of Mars, Katie. <laughs> 
I don't understand why they're causing a ruckus when they're so comfy. They could just be lying in their space beds. Is it because Barsoom is mostly rock and they can't find, like, a nice feathered down bed to lay on top of? Maybe that's it, though. They're so comfortable, like, they forgot what discomfort is, which makes them angry gods. What a horrible dystopia. I forgot how to be uncomfortable! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now I want to see a sci-fi movie where the big pitch is, Did you know man only uses 10% of his brain? Because the 90% is focused on being comfortable? Imagine if we gave man ultimate comfort with potentially... I think that's true! If you woke up the other 90% of my brain that wasn't focused on getting comfy, it would just be realizing what life is and screaming in abject terror until I died. It would just be me screaming myself into dehydration and death. People would offer water, and I would say, no, 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 that would make this last longer. Let me die. Is this like an H.P. Lovecraft story? I became too comfortable and saw eternity. No. It's the other way around. I want my brain turned to 100% seeking comfort, because then I'll forget all the bullshit. No existential dread. It's just, is that blanket soft? I bet it is. Go touch the blanket. You're Cody, snuggled you're... up in the blanket. Go to bed in the blanket. Cody, you're describing hedonism that exists. Oh, shit. That sounds fantastic. I found a philosophy for me. But as you probably gathered from that introduction... <laughs> You're listening to another episode of How I Learned to Love the Bombs, where we take a second look at the movies pop culture has turned a blind eye to. Now, last time we talked about the journey that the Conran brothers went on to get their passion project, Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow, filmed. And we mentioned afterwards that Carrie Conrad had briefly been attached to another movie that had been stuck in development hell a little bit longer than Sky Captain. And by longer, I mean the majority of the 20th century. Yes, as Mike said, we are talking about John Carter tonight, or as I like to call it, Quiet Aquaman. That is an accurate description of John Carter. That's all I could think whenever I was rewatching it. Holy shit, this is Aquaman. <laughs> it's Aquaman if Aquaman just chilled the fuck out for five minutes. Look, we've got Willem Dafoe in supporting older actor roles in both of them. A little CGI in one and the other, surprisingly, but... Uh, This is a movie that holds a special place in my heart because I have been obsessed with the John Carter novel, specifically the first one, A Princess of Mars, since I was very, very young. See, whenever I was a kid, my dad was obsessed with going to every flea market he could find and searching every single book stand there looking for the exact same editions of the Edgar Rice Burroughs paperbacks he enjoyed whenever he was a kid. To interrupt, and I have to do this because it's going to drive me crazy if I don't. God damn it, you were just really setting us up for my chemical romance joke. Your father takes you to the flea market. I can only assume you're going to join the Black Parade. I was not emo in 2007, so I have no idea what you're talking about, Cody. I am. Oh, Oh, God. I'm just rapidly aging. Just on the show right now, turning to dust. Please return to the show. I'm going to go sit over here and just cry. Good. Now, for A Princess of Mars, it was the 1979 edition with the gorgeous Michael Whalen cover. If you've ever looked up old pulp covers from around the time, you've probably seen it. It has stark naked John Carter holding also stark naked Dejah Thoris in his arms in the middle of this Martian temple with slain green men all around him, 
shadows just barely concealing what I assume was an Earth-conquering schlong. <laughs> the perfect to... material for Disney. That dick could jump so far. <laughs> Boing. I was obsessed with specifically that cover, partially because that was the only thing with naked people on it I was allowed to look at, and also just because of how primal it looked. Even before I knew the book's backstory, it just seemed like I was looking at the birth of adventure, and something about A Princess of Mars always stuck with me. It is very basic, very dated, but Edgar Rice Burroughs fell ass backwards into creating the perfect template for every adventure story. I mean, the John Carter novels are like the Rosetta Stone of adventure sci-fi. Not only did it help make portal fiction a bona fide subgenre, without it we would have no Martian Chronicles, no Flash Gordon, no Star Wars, no Avatar. This series is so eternally influential that because John Favreau and Mark Fergus weren't able to make their version of John Carter for Universal in 2006, they had to move on to their next project, Iron Man. <laughs> John Carter movies falling apart helped create the modern blockbuster. I like to think that every time God closes a door on John Carter adventure, he opens up an Iron Man type reprieve or window. <laughs> and what's crazy is I wasn't exaggerating at the beginning. The Martian tales of Edgar Rice Burroughs have been in development since 1931. <laughs> when Bob Clampett went to Edgar as he was still writing the series and pitched the movie for him, because those were back in the days when you had to actually approach the person who owned the thing and get them to agree to make a movie. And in 1936, he put together a demo reel, completely rotoscoped, just like Snow White would be a year later, and showed it to investors, but he couldn't get funding because small-town distributors complained that the concept of an Earthman on Mars would confuse country folk. <laughs> that is the reason the first feature-length animated movie wasn't made. <laughs> that is the most America thing. I think people were confused by the movie when it came out in, like, 2012. So, you know, they probably weren't totally incorrect. True. I'm mad about this, though, because you mentioned, like, they started this, what, you said 1931? 1931 took them, like, five years to put together a demo reel. Like, this was in animation's infancy, too. We could have had Bella Lugosi voicing a giant <laughs> four-armed alien. <laughs> oh, he would have, too. With Errol Flynn as the voice of John Carter. That was a thing we could have had in a better I'm world. I'm mad now. Good. Good night. Everybody had their hands in this. Harry Hausen tried to make a swashbuckling John Carter in the 50s that would have had stop motion aliens. Like, this is the movie that was unadaptable for the better part of the 20th century. Up until Andrew Stanton just got a wild hair up his ass after doing Wally and petitioned Disney to go to Edgar Rice Burroughs' estate and get back the license they let expire years earlier. Like, that's the amount of power Stanton had after his Pixar movies. He was given a blank slate to direct a movie no one had been able to make for a hundred years. And in live action, no less. Like, to, to take a guy who is an animation dude and to just say, sure, we'll let him do a live action feature. That's some big dick swinging energy. It's crazy. Like, And when you look at what went on behind the scenes, like, yeah, you can kind of 
see where maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Not 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 the creation of the movie, but the complete and utter blank check. Like Stanton admits he reshot this movie like twice. God. John Carter was filmed three times over because he came from an animation background where he just thought that's how movies were made. Like you just started over if you didn't like the first. Not just an animation background, a Pixar animation background. Pixar scraps their movies every time. Oh, yeah. It's like just a running thing with them. Like the first version, they always think, oh, that's garbage. Redo. Just start over. It's fine. If this takes three years to get an original out, that's fine. Not not great for live action. (laughs) But, you know, whatever. It worked for Cursed. Why not this? I was watching an interview with Stanton earlier today where somebody asked him uh, what was going on with Pixar after being bought out by Disney because they seem to scrap a lot of movies now. And Stanton just looked at dead face and said, it's Pixar. If you had any idea how many movies we've killed in my time there, you would not believe it. Well, I remember like people freaking out because they got like some uh, concept art for what was it, Newt? The, yeah, if I'm remembering the right one. Yeah, yeah. And people are like, "Oh, they're killing films now! Oh, we're getting our sequels!" And it's like, nah. From what I've heard, Pixar has always been pretty eager to throw something out if it doesn't meet their quality needs. Like, granted, I don't think all the sequels are up to snuff, but the original films, like, they're they're pretty steady on making sure they've got a good product before they just throw that out to the world. I, I'm sure there are so many failed Pixar movies that have dialogue tracks recorded and shit that we don't even know of (laughs) there's probably some complete pixar movies we don't know about hell the good dinosaur was almost one of those yeah Yeah. oh i forgot about that one that was that was fully produced and almost never released after already having like two other versions having been scrapped i'm still convinced the only reason they finally released it was too many people knew about it for them to get away i think so yeah that could be true Because, oh boy, when was the last time someone mentioned The Good Dinosaur to you? Uh, I occasionally see it in thumbnails for the fall of Pixar YouTube videos. I think that's about as far as pop culture reach extends. I saw Uh, it on Stars the other day. I didn't watch it. I just saw that it was on Stars the other day. Just to digress a second here, if you waste your time making YouTube videos about the fall of Pixar... (laughs) I know, right? What a sad (laughs) life you live. (laughs) Like, I might even complain about some of the sequels for shit, but god damn it, Toy Story 4? That, fuck, I love that. I know, I did see a video about the, uh, how Star and the Force of Evil lost its way the other day, <laughs> so, you know, everybody has, everybody has their till to die on, I guess. I, I don't know how you could look at something like Coco or Inside Out and be like, oh god, they're past their prime now. I wish this was still Toy Story 2 days. Give us a bug's life again, why don't you? <sighs> Uh, again, speaking to Stanton's inexperience, another story told in that interview was he had, like, I guess just a lunch. He said it was a very uh, brief meeting, but he sat down with Brad Bird and the entire conversation, they just bitched about how hard directing live action is compared to animation. <laughs> like Stanton was like, I-, I go out there and we shoot a shot and the crew just does another setup without asking what shot I want. And Bird was like, I know, right? <laughs> like, what? why is that? I'm just going to mess it up again. Why don't they ask? <laughs> well, Stanton, too, on the DVD commentary for John Carter, it was interesting hearing him talk about it. He's like, yeah, in animation, you just make what you need. Like, I don't have to worry about coverage. I don't have to worry about, like, 
five seconds before and five seconds after a shot, just in case I need something to work on the edit with. You just animate exactly what you need for the scene. It's all storyboarded. You make what you need. Whereas for live action, totally different world. All of a sudden it's like, oh shit, I gotta make sure Taylor is like holding his pose correctly so I can do like some CGI stuff later. Or he has to be moving like this and I have to film some of the background because this has to fade into that next shot. I can't imagine how stressful it is going from one medium to the other. And do you guys remember this too when the movie came out, how angry people were that uh, Stanton went from John Carter's failure back to Pixar to do Finding Dory? Oh, yeah. Felt like a downgrade. Well, there was like a whole group of people that were mad that he got to go back to animation. Like, (laughs) no, he should be in movie jail forever. He made one movie that made me angry that I didn't see. (laughs) that's always been the thing with john carter is it's a movie everyone makes fun of but no one has seen like i was digging up newspaper articles that were covering all the like behind the scenes turmoil and spitballing why america didn't respond to them like clearly none of them had actually seen the movie so they were saying things like perhaps it was the movie's baffling mix of the old west and mars in conflicting scenes like no that's that's not a thing in the movie (laughs) i mean you're clearly in the old west and then you go to mars they're both in the film but it's not like we've got a person back on earth we cut to every two minutes this this is a thing we find happens a lot these days and i think it it happened even more so around that time like i would say the 2007 to maybe like 2013 2014 was when it got like really heavy into this where the culture would decide their opinion on a movie like meme memify a film months before it comes out of course that still happens and it happened before then too but for some reason during that like stretch of time there was like they would just make up their mind about what the movie was everything that happened in the movie months before it came out. I think we've talked about this with, like, The Incredible Hulk. Like, that was part of the reason, like, Incredible Hulk was received so weirdly is it had been decided that it was not very good months before a trailer had even come out. And the same thing happened with John Carter, and mostly due to the marketing, which I know we'll go into. It, it was just decided, like, hey, this is a laughing stock. Um, it's starring that dude from Friday Night Lights, the dude who played Gambit and whatnots. It's directed by a Pixar guy, which I don't know why that always played into it, but I think it made it seem infantile to people. I think people were mad because, hey, this is an animation guy. How dare he try to do something different? Like, there were, there was a lot of animosity, I remember, online because he kind of switched. And he wasn't Brad Bird. Yeah, there's this kind of, like, idea that, oh, he thinks he's too good for animation, does he? Ah, we'll get him. Like, it was, I would almost describe, like, the environment after john carter flopped is gleeful online oh yeah there was a lot of schadenfreude going on which was weird because when you watch the film it's not like oh this is offensively bad or this is like they gave an idiot 300 million dollars i won't say this is an amazing movie to me but in no way is it one where i'd like start laughing at the director for his failures and there was a lot of other things going on like prince of persia had came out recently and I kind of think people bundled the two movies together. Yeah. Plus there was the avatar of it all. Like, I feel like a lot of people's knee jerk reaction was, oh, we're getting an avatar ripoff from Disney. Nice. I'm going to actively not support this. Many people felt it was an avatar ripoff. There was confusion in general. I remember going to the movie theaters and they had a John Carter poster by the exit. But it was it was the one where it didn't actually say what the goddamn name of the movie was. 
<sighs> just him riding the thing. Yeah, where it's had like JC, uh, like yes. kind of in the top of the poster. Where if you didn't know what this was, you'd be like, what? You maybe wouldn't even recognize the J and C as meaning anything. Other baby just kind of like runes carved into like the poster, which is such a weird way to advertise your film. Like it was basically a teaser poster that was up until the movie was supposed to be out. And my buddy had no clue what it was. He he t- turned to me and asked me like, what is this? Because he knew, knew I watched trailers. And I had to explain to him what it was. And he's like, oh, that sounds complicated. I don't know. The poster doesn't do a good job explaining it out. And I'm sure there are other cases like that, considering the movie made like $30 million opening weekend. Oh, yeah, this movie was a marketing disaster from its inception, and there's a weird reason why. So at the time, Disney Studios was being run by Rich Ross, whose previous job was running the Disney Channel. Now, John Carter was greenlit under the former studio head, Dick Cook, but he was fired by Iger and replaced by Ross, and he's the one who oversaw the project. Around that time, uh, Ross fired their current head of marketing and replaced her with a woman named Marie Teresa Carney, who is most known for creating the 99 Nails salon chain. If you drove by a 99 Nails today, that's her. Her name's Carney? Yep. That's fake. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time, she was the owner of a small New York marketing boutique. So this was kind of just some person Ross knew who was being given the most important marketing job in Hollywood (laughs) out of nowhere. And yeah, because of her lack of experience and Ross's lack of experience and from everything I've read, complete lack of backbone, there was nobody to ever say no to Stanton. So Stanton just had a blank check this entire production up to and including the marketing. See, I'd always thought that Stanton had gotten screwed over by Disney getting cold feet over the sci-fi angle because of stuff like Mars Needs Moms bombing and their infamous focus groups. Yeah, that stuff did take place, and Carney was a bird in Stanton's ear telling him to please lose the Mars title, but it was ultimately Stanton's idea because... The more he kept hearing, you need to lose it, you need to lose it, he started convincing himself, you know what? People will like this better if it's just John Carter. Because then we can have that awesome moment at the end where it says John Carter of Mars. Oh, audiences are going to love that. So he took control of the entire marketing campaign, despite not really understanding how marketing works. The reason you you knew nothing about John Carter going in unless you knew about the books, was entirely him. He described the marketing as he wanted to recreate the summer Star Wars premiered. Like, he wanted John Carter to just be this thing whispered about, like, oh, did you see the John Carter trailer? Yeah, what's going on in there? I just saw images. Who knows what that movie's going to be? Like, he imagined, like, eight-year-old boys with wide eyes going to see John Carter and just having a universe they've never seen before opened up to them. But he was responsible for the billboard ads, the posters, like he went super minimalist with it. And yeah, he just released a movie that nobody knew what to do with. Oh God. That is might be the biggest marketing misstep in modern history. It's fascinating because so often we, we kind of make the case the other way. Where it's, oh, the marketing guys don't understand the movie. They'll spoil anything or they'll sell it the wrong way just to make a buck. 
And we, we always blame the marketing when the movie does bad. But you also have to respect these people are professionals that are basically staking their careers and livelihoods on being able to sell a movie to people, just to get asses in seats. So maybe we should respect them in some ways. Going the complete opposite direction of just saying, no, make the director do it all, it seems like a real bad idea. Unless he started as a marketer and then became a director. Directors seem to rarely be able to pull off good marketing. Almost every story you hear about directorial um, interference with marketing never quite turns out right. It always ends up being this huge mistake. The The only times I can think of it being good necessarily is, is when a director steps in to basically say, hey, this is a huge spoiler. Please don't put it in the middle of this trailer <laughs> casually. <laughs> like, try and hide parts of this, please. I remember um, with Watchmen, like everyone talked about why Watchmen was um, advertised as like, it's so stupid. Warner Brothers advertises like an action movie, like when it's not. So it just confused people. So uh, people who want action movies didn't like it. And people who would go to see Watchmen thought it was an action movie, so they didn't go. And it turned out that was Snyder, but not because he wanted people to think like he felt it was an action movie. He wanted to switcheroo people. Like, people who would go in to see an action movie and then see, like, a deconstruction of it. But that's a great director idea. Doesn't actually translate to marketing. It's not what you want to do. Does not work in a 30-second TV spot. You gotta save those big ideas for what's on screen. You gotta have yeah, something exactly. pretty direct in a marketing package. Well, I've noticed directors always seem to think that people are going to see their movie regardless. And the marketing is just part of the experience. And no, not at all. Yeah. It's tough. There's a lot of competition out there, especially over the summer. Like, you gotta have a goddamn good trailer to convince me, like, fuck, I'll go with your movie instead of Star Wars 8 or wherever else is playing. There's a limited number of times I can go to the theater, make me pick yours. Now, you can mystery box Star Wars and the next Avengers movie. That's about it. Yeah, things that already have, like, billions of dollars in previous fans. Hey, you're kind of limited. And Carter already had an uphill battle because every single piece of popular fucking media for like the last 60 goddamn years or more has t stolen essentially from Princess of Mars. So oh yeah, if you don't try hard enough, it just looks bland and like everything else or looks like a ripoff of things like Avatar, which we talked, we mentioned got like it got saddled with because Avatar is taking from John Carter. Cameron was very open about that in the marketing to Avatar. Like, oh yeah, this is just Princess of Mars. Yeah. <laughs> they should have linked on the other way with the advertising. Just lean in hard as fuck on saying this is a Frank Franzetta Conan the Barbarian movie in space. Yeah. Because fuck, that would have drawn me to theaters. When Advertise... was the last time we got a good Conan-style movie? Like, sure as hell was the last stuff. Conan. Ugh. Sadly, no. But the, uh, there was a good cast in that one, too, which makes me so mad. Great cast. I'm not here to talk about Conan. That Conan. <laughs> Conan. God damn it. But I should say, while... You sound like me talking to my mom when she's like, Spider-Man. I'm like, Spider-Man. It's Spider-Man. No, it's Pete Spider-Man. Spider-Man. She always says it like Spider-Man. And my dad and my mom, my dad and myself always give my mom shit about it. Now I know what it's like and I don't like it. I should say, Stanton was given pretty much free reign with this movie. He was not given Final Cut, which I think is why we have the most bizarre, out-of-place, cold open in recent memory. <laughs> if anything actually in the movie fucked it, I think it would be that, because that does put a bad taste in your mouth. 
when all of a sudden Willem Dafoe is giving you generic info dump exposition and you're in the sky on Mars and plot is happening, but no story. And then you just cut to the Old West for 20 minutes. Oh, that's why that's in there? I never knew Stan didn't have Final Cut. It makes you feel so overwhelmed. There is a lot of stuff in this movie, and they're constantly giving you new things. So to think, oh, let's have a narration at the beginning before we have this wraparound story that then goes into the past. Like, what the fuck? We're already dealing with, like, Inception-style story framing. We don't need people to do over voice or uh, overdubbing over top. I love John Carter, like, fucking dearly. Like, I adore this movie. God, do that opening, I have to admit, is movie-breaking. You have to pretend it's not there. Yeah, you. if you focus on it, it breaks the entire movie, just because who opens like that? Like, that's so fucking confusing. That creates such audience whiplash. And it's a bad scene, an objectively bad scene. <laughs> it's not a good scene, and it's completely fucking unnecessary. And why would you start there? Like, why would you show that before... The character gets to see anything like that. So you're breaking the you're breaking it for the audience already. And then you get all that exposition again later anyway. There is no doubt in my mind that was a last minute note on the final reshoot where Disney was like, we will get you everything else and pay for one more shoot if you just do this for us. Anything that has random narration by a character who's not narrating any other part of the movie, that's a studio note. On the plus side, though, if you want to make a fan edit, it'd be the easiest thing in the world to do. Just like... I feel like Stanton arranged that so you could just cut it out at a later date. You probably don't even need that. You could just scene skip over it on your DVD player. Yeah, like there's transitions that don't fall into it at all. Like that's just a cl- like this thing that's stuck in between a reel. <laughs> now, we front-loaded this with a lot of criticism and drama, but I absolutely adore Andrew Stanton as a filmmaker, I recommend looking up any video about him talking about storytelling. It's like listening to one of the greatest directors who never quite popped in the public eye. The DVD commentary for John Carter does reflect that. Like, this is clearly a guy who thinks in terms of story over spectacle. Yeah. He he very clearly points that out during the commentary. Like, when John Carter is having his flashback as he's murdering hundreds of aliens... Like, he's like, okay, there's only going to be a couple of big action beats here, but I don't want action for action's sake. I want them to, in some way, advance the story. Like, when John Carter is fighting the white apes, it's not just because they need a gladiator fight, although that helps. In his mind, that was so they could have the story beat of him winning over the Tharks. Like, it's, it's exclusively there just for him to prove to be a hero to the Tharks that they can follow so you can move the Tharks into the final battle, which is, in storytelling, yeah, that's great. He's he's thinking of them like dominoes. This has to lead to that, has to lead to that. I'm not just going to have a 15-minute CGI battle for no reason that does not really fit into the movie. I would argue there are other problems with the particular site fight scene he was commenting on, but uh, in theory, he had it right. I'm quite a big fan of that scene. Not I, the, I'm uh, sorry, not the, not the white apes. I'm talking um, when John Carter goes into battle against the Tharks that are charging him. Or not the Tharks, the, uh, the other tribe. I don't know what to call them. There's too many aliens for me to remember. Racist. Uh, uh, maybe. And he has the flashbacks back to Earth when he's coming home and he, he realizes his home has been destroyed and his wife's dead. Oh, his Saint of Killers flashback? Yeah, I feel like that is the absolute wrong place to put that information in the movie and it kind of kills momentum and motivation and all of that. 
I can understand what he's going for, but it doesn't work with like an hour 15 left in the film. See, I disagree because I actually quite love that beat. I love how the script hints like very strongly at what Carter's backstory is, but it's in this orgy of rage and violence that you see what's been motivating him the whole time. Like you kind of feel like everything he's doing in that scene is just his soul screaming. That's because of this one drama. Stanton mentions in the commentary, this is the film's turning point. It's a gate he has to get past. And once he goes through his murder spree, he's good to go. And the movie reflects that. Like all of a sudden he starts making choices to help other people because he's motivated to care about them and all that. It's like, he's let this trauma kind of flow past him. I, I, in theory, I get what he's going for. But the way it's cut, it makes it feel too closely associated with him murdering. So it's like we're still dealing with his rage because the flashback is right there as he's murdering so many people instead of emphasizing the fact that he's making a heroic sacrifice so his friends can escape the battle. I think it's a technical faux pas that kind of throws the movie off for me because now we've had the turning point, but there's still a lot of movie left to go through where it's like, oh, okay, John Carter is now the good guy and this is going to be John Carter's inevitable push towards doing the right thing. Two points. One, I'm the tiebreaker. <laughs> um, and I 100% agree with Jamie, so haha. <laughs> Two, I, I actually think you are correct that it is focused also on on the rage and the, the wanton violence. But I think that's also part of the point, is he is making heroic sacrifice. At the same time, he's also confronting his unbridled rage towards that. Like, he's he's using it as motivation and also facing his own own rage and and violence as we've kind of seen it throughout the story and that's why he's able to reach catharsis by facing exactly like what he is with that violence and then be able to move past it exactly i kind of feel like like, i feel like one of the things that scene lets you know too is all those scenes in the beginning where carter's being a lazy asshole and a drunk and he doesn't want to get involved anything that's not because of a weakness of character that's because when he gets involved he shows this side of him. Like, he's, he kind of is the saint of killers yeah. in that respect. It's like, no, I don't want to get involved because whenever I do, that opens a door of rage I cannot control. And I love that that comes in the middle of the movie and not the end. He has half of a heroic turn there by just getting involved and doing the big macho action movie thing, but he still has a lot to learn. We still have to wait for him to become a fully fleshed out hero, which I think is a very interesting take on a story which is super bare bones in terms of characterization in its published form. I thought uh, Stanton and Michael Chabon and the third man who wrote this movie—that other completely man. escapes me at the moment. One of the, I think, a Pixar writer actually. He's going to be very sad when he listens to this episode and realizes he's been cut right out. Oh, man. There's still like some bad overdubbing in the edit, like, and Jake Johnson. <laughs> I wrote Nemo. That's something I did uh, really like about the characterization of Carter in the film, which is, uh, like, versus, the, like, the source material and the, the artwork that's famous and how these things are usually presented. He is actually kind of, he's not abhorrent, to violence but he's very uncomfortable necessarily with violence and i i kind of like that addition to the character and to this kind of story where it usually ends up going more like all-out action hero dude like barbarian type yeah it's a, it's a great update to a character who 
in the books is essentially just literature's first example of a video game protagonist. <laughs> but you read old Pulp Adventure, and yeah, they are pretty much just video games. Here is your avatar, explore this world, kill stuff, talk to people, book. Well, that's where RPGs came from. Like, pen and paper RPGs came from, like, old pulps and shit like that. There's a reason for that. And those became video games, so... Ironically, you playing Halo right now? Thank Princess of Mars. <laughs> Once again, it just keeps on inspiring endlessly. And, like, speaking of the strengths of the screenplay... Every time I watch this movie, I am in awe of the fact that it's just a princess of Mars. Like, things are very cleverly lifted from later books in the series. Like, the Therns are actually the villains of the second book, The Gods of Mars, which are seated heavily in here because they were doing The Gods of Mars before this bombed. Yeah. It would have been a little awkward considering, like, right after his marriage, he got sent back home. And I can only assume the shapeshifters took his place. I can basically imagine, like, an hour and a half long movie where it's just him rubbing the back of his neck like, uh, it wasn't me who did those things, baby. <laughs> it's all Mark Strong. I know, my mind just went to, he's just, he's plowing Dejah Thoris. Uh, well, let me, let, oh, let me rephrase. Dejah Thoris is plowing him. And <laughs> suddenly he looks up, it's Mark Strong. What hole was I even in? <laughs> Speaking of... John Carter and Orifice of Mars. <laughs> Speaking of holes. Speaking of Mark Strong, this might be oh, the no. most... Don't assert <laughs> Mark Strong's gaping asshole. I don't anyway. like it. I don't like it at all. This might be the most thankless Mark Strong role. I can think of, because he doesn't have a whole lot to do. He's basically there to stand around and be impassive and intimidating. But goddamn, is he not memorable. <laughs> Just being Q this entire movie, but more of a dick. Well, they give us brain villain, they give us brawn villain. But it doesn't help that all the underlings to brain villain are basically visually identical to brain villain. Plus, he has godlike powers that aren't super, super well-defined, so it makes it hard to get invested in any sort of conflict with him. But he can teleport and become an old lady. What more do you need? He's a quantum dick. Exactly. <laughs> but quantum dick versus sword man, it doesn't seem like a fair fight. Well, you're fighting God. Haven't you ever seen Only God Forgives? I have. There's no karaoke in this film, though. Although, if they change this up where fucking, like, Taylor just had multiple dreams of him waking up and having no hands, just, like, bloody stumps, maybe this would have drawn some more people in. Oh, I would have loved to see Nicholas Reffens, John Carter. Oh, Jesus. Just everything is neon. Christina Hendricks is Dejah Thoris. <laughs> Oscar Isaac's a Thark? All right. <laughs> Thark. Uh, speaking of, I, I have to fucking hand it to the production crew of this movie. How do the Tharks look exactly as they're described in the books and drawn in every cover but still look, like, really dynamic and move around realistically. <laughs> like, that, that shouldn't work. They shouldn't be real. They're a crazy sci-fi design. It's so hard to take something that was just thrown on the cover of, like, a paperback book and make it work in three dimension. Just think of, like, all the, the, the stuff, like, documented in Jodorowsky's Dune. Like, those designs have actually brought to film. How would they ever work? To have the talent to actually make that stuff work 
through CGI and motion capture and all that shit is amazing to me. Like, how cool is that? Someone had to, like, just fucking spend hundreds of hours and weeping over this thing to make it feel right. And, uh, yeah, big hand, big uh, round of applause for that. Too often oh, yeah. we kind of talk about shitty CGI, but hell. The effects in that world are a goddamn work of art. Willem Dafoe plays a pretty convincing four-armed tusk man. There's, like, a, an alien bulldog. That's pretty goddamn amazing. There's a Again, lot of described exactly as it is in the book. They changed nothing. Essentially just Lockjaw. <laughs> pretty much Lockjaw. Yeah. That's something Stanton was very adamant about. He didn't want it to feel like you were in a sci-fi movie. He wanted it to feel like you were in a period piece representing a specific time in the history of Mars. So, like, his message to the production crew was, like, don't do a bunch of crazy sci-fi stuff. Like, make it feel like we're walking around in a civilization that's just on the cusp of an industrial revolution. Like, they'll have flying cars and crazy ships and sci-fi stuff in about a hundred years, but this is their Old West, and build everything from that concept. And you can see that in, like, the set design and the costuming. It feels real and lived in. God, I'm just imagining now a John Carter Avatar of the Last Airbender versus Korra, Legend of Korra. There's a <sighs> similar kind of jump there where it goes from, like, eh, there's not really a lot of technology to, oh, no, it's all steampunk. Just imagine if we got a sequel where everything jumped forward a hundred years in technology in that universe. I will say, I really love the depiction of the, I don't know the right term for it, but like the alien kind of hieroglyphics that are in the oh, film. Oh, yeah. Those they're kind of cool. just the glowing signs that are slowly kind of wiggling and morphing, but you can tell they're, they're trying to represent words in a language you can't understand that are written on these ruins. And it's a really neat, underplayed kind of visual dynamic. Like, if this movie was in 4K with HDR, that'd be, like, the highlight of the film as you see the lights coming through the rock or, you know, the, the lights kind of imitating the spider webs and all that kind of shit. It's a very cool, low-key idea, which I love. And it's also uniform. Like, you can see stuff like the hieroglyphics or, like, little bits of uh, the various cultures represented here and there. It's like, you can pick that out. Like, oh, that's a, that's a thing from John Carter. Like, oh, that's what uh, the Tharks camp looks like. Despite the movie only being a little over two hours, you feel like you've watched a Lord of the Rings film. Like, this world has seeped into your brain. Yeah, it doesn't drag for me either. Like, it, it feels breathy. You know what I mean? It has the same quality as, ironically, I hate to say it, like Star Wars, where it just feels like it kind of goes <sighs> Ooh, on forever, but in like the best of ways. See, I think what might have impacted some audiences with the pacing of the film is not that it was too long, but there's a lot of back and forth between locations. Like we have John Carter meeting up with one group of people, then he bounces to another group of people. He's let go from those people. He goes to a different group of people, but then he has to return later on to get them as his army. It's it's not killer, but it ends up feeling slightly episodic, even though that's what they were trying not to do with this film. They didn't want to make it feel like five chapters of a pulp novel stuck together. It's a globetrotting film. It just happens to be on a different globe. Yeah, I think that's what can throw people off, because you do have John Carter basically going location A, then B, then back to A, then C, then A, and it it can make the film feel longer than it is because he has to do that travel between those, or, you know, the setup just to get him from plot A to plot B to plot C. I feel like a lot of that is inevitable, just because of the structure, any kind of adaptation of a Burroughs book is going to have. I, I do think Stanton is able to find some clever workarounds. Like, years oh, later, I... be worse. 
It could just oh, be yeah. like literally like here's one mini 30 minute movie and we staple that onto another 30 minute movie. <laughs> oh, we've seen we've seen movies that pull that off and it's it's rough. <laughs> yeah, this this mostly flows. It can get a little in my mind kind of repetitive because he's kind of bounced between certain places. It's almost like video game logic. Oh, you've been here before. Now backtrack. But it certainly works better than it would if this was just 10 different plots all kind of thrown together in mini cycles. Yeah, I think that just comes from Stanton's Pixar background, like the exposition scene where we find out about John Carter's war history is broken up by him trying to escape every 10 seconds and getting his ass kicked. Like, that's a total Pixar move. I'm sorry. Now I'm just thinking about the beginning of Up and how sad it'd be if you found out, like, his wife had bone cancer or something, and it's just, like, a montage of her dying slowly. Who says he didn't, though? I mean, we don't know what happened before she was killed. The details are blurry. John Carter, too, would have been a real crier. (laughs) Well, it is just the Odyssey on Mars. It would have been so epic. Uh, Stanton and Shaban, like, had this plotted out beat for beat for a trilogy like a lot of the stuff that's kind of slightly out of place or just seems a bit incidental in this movie were seeds for the trilogy and stanton wanted them to adapt all of the books for like 40 years like he wanted them to be making john carter movies when he was dead he genuinely thought that he might have had star wars on his hands under different circumstances arguably he would have it's tough to say in these kind of situations because, fuck, if there's a sequel, you want there to be seeds of it that you can go back to the first and say, oh, that was definitely something they thought about. But on the other hand, you don't want that to in any way kind of impede your enjoyment of the first film. In my mind, just the ending of this is such like a weird kind of downer because they're establishing it for John Carter's going to go back to Mars. It's fine. There will be more adventures on Mars. But as a solo movie, it feels very much like, oh, geez, I just have to fill in a lot of these blanks here. And I don't like what I'm do- my mind's doing. He's not going to have a good time at all when he returns to his wife after 10 years. That's what I'm thinking. He's going to go back to Mars and be like, oh, God, I'm now divorced. My wife hates me. Mars is terrible. Let me go back to Earth. Oh, she's getting plowed by Kantos Khan. Uh, it's the worst. <laughs> you <damn>. pure boy. <laughs> Guys, I just say how fucking happy I am that completely unnecessarily they kept in Kantos Khan and he is still a beautiful adventure man. Who's just in his own movie. You have been talking about this for like a decade now. <laughs> gotta, gotta get it out of your system. Just air it all out. Just, just get it out there. The fucking bromance between John Carter and Kantos Khan in A Princess of Mars has stuck with me since a kid. <laughs> like, it's just, it's such an old pulp thing. Like, I go to this alien world and who do I meet? Errol Flynn. Just leading the army of Red Martians. Ha ha! And we are best friends now. Action buddies. <laughs> Pushing too many pencils. And uh, speaking <laughs> of the cast, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Deja Thoris, as played by Lynn Collins, just being Wonder Woman. <laughs> like, this threw me off. Appears in the movie about 30 minutes in. Just like where a lot of movies are like, act one is done. We're moving into the act two stuff. It's like, here, here you go. Here's one of your main players. Would hey, you- still better than it is in the book where she just kind of drops out of the sky. Like, I mean that in a, I don't know how to feel about it. In one way, it goes against more movies I'm used to. Like, God damn it. Why did they just keep throwing stuff at the screen? On the other hand, 
like the purpose of this is oh shit there's always something interesting happening in the movie like every five minutes like a new character plops in or some sort of new plot point or exposition once again it's video game logic it's a world opening up to you so i've had a theory for a couple years which is lynn collins this entire time has been a universe displaced wonder woman who became an actress and renamed herself (laughs) lynn collins because i was mad when she was not cast as wonder woman Which would have been redundant because she's essentially doing that here, but it's pretty goddamn incredible. And a very un- like, unsung, like, badass action chick performance, too. Like, since it's in John Carter, which no one fucking saw, but, you know. (laughs) She's basically Princess Bubblegum. Like, she is an action science princess. Carter calls her professor the entire movie. It's delightful. (laughs) Like, I, I fucking love that it's like this- and The Mummy are like the two action adventures where the female lead's defining characteristic is being in academia and nothing else. <laughs> John Carter and The Mummy actually have a lot in common. You, you know, what I kept thinking watching this... Mummy and Mars. Sorry, I had to give up. <laughs> what I was thinking watching this was, we've always talked about this being very much a throwback of sorts to 90s action adventures. I honestly think Stanton was pulling from the Mask of Zorro when making this. I can see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, tell me John Carter at the beginning of this movie isn't Banderas at the beginning of Mask of Zorro. Oh, no, it totally fits. Yeah. Before, I'm sorry, we've already passed this point, but it's just occurring to me that James Purefoy also was Solomon Kane, and it feels like these are, you know, well, Solomon Kane, basically any of these kind of films feel like they're kindred spirits. But also, I get mad because I see that guy and I instantly think, Thomas Jane? And then I'm wrong. <laughs> you do that too? Constantly. It's like nature gave us two. Then I get upset with myself because it's like, oh, I actually like James Purifoy, but now I'm disappointed it's not Thomas Jane. Yeah, it's confusing. It's like, I have nothing against this guy. He's in a lot of great stuff. This isn't Thomas Jane. I've been fooled into thinking I was about to enjoy some Thomas Jane, and now I have to deal with James Purifoy, which is good, but now it's like indirectly made him a runner-up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a confusing, frustrating situation. And I do it every time he's in a movie, so I, I apologize to him. It's like, what? Could you have like a big mole or a scar or something so I know immediately? <laughs> scar your face for us, James Purifoy. <laughs> Can you please have a robot eye? <laughs> dye, dye your hair gray or white or go bald. Do a Lex Luthor. I don't know, man. Cut a beer to be good. Something. Give me the anti-Jane. <laughs> the anti-Jane. My God, he plays fool killer. <laughs> yes. I do, I do love how James Purefoy is just a pulp dude now. I'm sorry. I'm going through his Wikipedia, and I'm so confused because I just found a tidbit you guys probably already knew. V for Vendetta. Uncredited. Left six weeks into filming, few opening scenes of a masked V are James Purefoy, but are dubbed by Weaving. Yep. Really? I didn't know that. That's fucking on Wikipedia. No, I didn't know that at all. You didn't? You really? Yeah, he, um, no. he couldn't. He quit because he couldn't. He just couldn't figure out how to act while wearing a mask. That would be hard. He had a really difficult time. So that's why, like, that. the first image of V they ever released, the first promo image was before Weaving was actually cast. They were already filming. It was a Purefoy. Weird. So once again, just James Purefoy being all costumed adventurers. (laughs) Speaking Uh of... I'm sorry, one more thing, because I'm on the wiki page. He left V for Vendetta. His next movie was Goose on the Loose. (laughs) As Kenneth Donnelly. Same plot. Whatever. (laughs) Voila. 
<laughs> Same to you. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Oh, fuck. Using high rise? I forgot about that. <laughs> and we've lost Cody. Yeah, I'm going to turn off Wikipedia now. There's a, there's a lot of stuff to find out on the internet. So, yeah, speaking of Purefoy and his, his pulp stuff, I want so badly now for Taylor Kitsch to be Tarzan and something. Ooh. Just make him all of the Burroughs things. I would love that. Kitsch is do do for a comeback. With Daryl yeah. Sabara showing up as Edgar Rice Burroughs in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I just have a loosely connected Burroughs universe where that dude is just traveling the world collecting stories. Because I think that might be my favorite little unnecessary detail in this movie. <laughs> they didn't have to introduce Edgar Rice Burroughs as a character, but no, it is in the books. He is John Carter's nephew, so it had to be in the movie. <laughs> he had to stumble upon John Carter's grave, which can only be opened from the inside. I'm related to the super cool guy in the movie, you guys. <laughs> It just seems very unfair to put Taylor Kitsch as Tarzan because every Tarzan movie is essentially a flop, right? Like, that guy doesn't need another one. Don't put that on him. I want him to be the one that breaks through. Like, he's the Tarzan that made it. You, you can't keep throwing Tarzans at the screen. You can't. Yes, you can. It's, it's not a matter of if you do 50 of them, one will succeed. No, that just means you'll have a lot of people really in, uh, uninterested in Tarzan. Well, it's, it's the same thing with Robin Hood and King Arthur. Just make a Tarzan movie for once. True. Stop doing weird comic book versions of Tarzan. Yeah. What was the... Was the last Tarzan movie like? Was that just a straight Tarzan? They tried to, or did they fuck with it. And I didn't know. Like Legend it. was a Tarzan Returns movie. Oh, I assume there's gonna be like a Tarzan. Dude, you, gotta, you gotta bring Tarzan back before he can return. <laughs> Common sense, people. Common sense. <laughs> I just okay. I, I'm shitting on a movie I have not seen and don't really know that much about the plot, but I do love the idea. Of Tarzan having to return to the jungle. Tarzan, back to his roots. He has to dramatically take his shirt off again. Tarzan, you rich bastard. <laughs> Tarzan sucks. I hate Tarzan. Just Tarzan trying to kill himself in a NASCAR race. <laughs> Go on. This would be a stupid death, ook ook. <laughs> no more Tarzan. I think Tarzan's done. George of the Jungle, on the other hand, unlimited potential. Look out for that goddamn tree. It's rated R. That movie. Oh, Blumhouse Jesus. makes it. They do it Fantasy Island style. <laughs> what is Tarzan a serial killer? Like he's just swinging. Yes, through the like oh, uh, like whacking people on the skull. People are with... lost in the jungle. Fucking George of the Jungle's hunting them down. George, uh, George, wait, George of the Jungle, feed you two monkeys. <laughs> Dr. Doolittle, Doolittle stuck in the jungle. <laughs> That's just Dr. Moreau. Why has nobody done evil Tarzan as a horror movie before? The White Ape. That would, oh boy, that had been way better than what we got in the Green Inferno. This summer, the deadliest creature in the jungle is man. Fuck, I'd watch that. Just Tarzan yeah. slowly appearing in the screen. I like Phil how Collins we're... starts in slow, like they have a slow, <laughs> faulty cover of Phil Collins. Just like, man reach to the sky. 
I like how we immediately went back on our thing of we just gotta do Tarzan for real this time. Like, no, what if we do a horror <laughs> yeah, This is this is for us though. It's like if you're gonna make stupid shit, at least like entertain I'm on us. On the side, with it. Tarzan's fucked. You can't do Tarzan right. Make it horror. Slow Phil Collins all the way. I'm not playing drums. These are Tarzan's fist breaking skulls. Child skulls. Innocent oh, child skulls. He will murder anyone. There's a whole school bus that somehow ended up in the jungle. Tarzan's <laughs> going to kill them all. It's Jeepers Creepers 2 in Tarzan country. He has bat wings. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. What's Tarzan country? The The jungle? Yes. yes. I'm thinking Donkey he Kong Country, with but millions. with Tarzan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can... through murder. Anyone who comes in dies. It's his. We can never forget Tarzan is a fucking one percenter. <laughs> he is a fucking pretty boy, rich dude, with inherited wealth, slumming it in the jungle in that fucking treehouse. Well, besides that, he's the only human in the jungle. He's the only one who has an understanding of wealth, and he also makes it his deal to murder the other guys in there with money. Is there with that woman who's not allowed to leave the jungle. <laughs> Tarzan is a terror movie. He's pretty much just... Uh, like, Is this the People's Temple, Mike? Is he Jim a Jones? A little bit. He has a Mr. Muggs. There's, there's the, the Rosie O'Donnell monkey. That's that's like a faithful follower. She'll do anything he says. I would that... be friends with Tarzan. He'd kill me. Anyways, I think we were talking about John Carter, but I don't know where we got on this Tarzan rant. <laughs> Good movie. Good movie. Tarzan? No. <laughs> Never Tarzan. Yeah. But yeah, totally check john carter out it'll be it's on disney plus now but it should be there once the license runs out and i think march i believe so yeah yeah check it out in a glorious hd like that is still a beautiful movie it has like it has some faults as we went over but it's devastating to look at that and think of what could have been if things had just gone a little bit different but i'm fucking happy that there is a John Carter of Mars movie that is no bullshit. It's just a princess of Mars. Kind of perfect in many ways. Thank God for Disney for just giving us a bunch of really failed live action films. So at least we get one that we love. They are the kings of that. R.I.P. Tron franchise. Uh. R.I.P. Tron legacy. <laughs> uh, I, uh, as a final uh, button on the story of Rich Ross, uh, I was reading an article on the. A failure of John Carter, and it ended with a little bit of hope that uh, Ross seems to have uh, gotten a backbone now that he's uh, taken control away from Gore Verbinski on the Lone Ranger. Oh, he was fired a year later. Oh, good. When the hell are we gonna <laughs> get something new from Gore Verbinski? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Is it Tarzan? No, no one is Tarzan. Oh, fine yet but i do hope um people start coming around soon on john carter it has not found i don't think it's audience yet that's no. a movie nobody talks about people forgot it existed so hopefully people find it in time and it gets appreciated and hopefully but... stanton gets to direct something big in live action again he in spite of the difficulties he sounded like he really enjoyed the experience he treated the whole thing like it was an adventure he was going on Give him a Star Wars TV show. Come on, Disney. You've got the money. Give him Tales from Mos Eisley. 
have him do a show on fucking space satan i knew he was gonna go there i, I before the words have left your mouth i knew he was gonna go space satan werewolf and space satan and i knew that was coming next too oh All god i crimes. the future space crime why doesn't anyone care about salacious crumb because he like crawled up into jabba's asshole to like pleasure him or sleep or something that's exactly what happened in Return of the Jedi. That's how that movie played out exactly. <laughs> Ugh, terrifying. Fuck Salacious Crumb. He's not salacious at all. He's nasty. I don't like him. I think I was closing the show. Anyways, folks, <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of Box Office Pulp, you can find more of us doing in-depth analysis or commentaries or us fucking around. Maybe all three in one place on the rest of Box Office Pulp, which you can find on Stitcher, iTunes, Facebook, you can find us on uh, Twitter at Box Office Pulp. Check us out. BoxOfficePulp.com. BoxOfficePulp.com. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, and check out shit that I write on HorrorMoviesHub.com. That's right. Mike can actually plug things now. Yeah, Mike has a staffed position at a horror website. How long will it last before I get fired for gross incompetence? Or that thing I did. Ah, uh, it was just writing articles about Tarzan nonstop. Just, 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 what if, audience, imagine Tarzan, a man of the jungle, was a man of fear? What if Tarzan, a man of the jungle, was a man of fear? <laughs> <laughs> imagine if you will. Sentence. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Stanton, but I don't think this is a good idea for an ad campaign. Do it! <laughs> Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to leave the offices of Hollywood. <laughs> Slow piano music. Because you'll be in my heart. Yes, you'll be in my heart. From this day on, now and forevermore, you'll be in my heart. No matter what they say, piano picks up. You'll be here. Piano picks up in my heart. Piano's fucking slamming. Always. Piano's quiet. 2021 Tarzan. Cody, do you know how music works? I mean, I played a tuba for a while. never get past the idea of phil collins slow scores being used to underscore tarzan as a terror property <laughs> tarzan just slicing and dicing i wanna know can you show me it's, it's redone by trent reznor oh jesus i want that Derek mears is tarzan <laughs> oh fuck yes Every every fucking jungle movie is just about cannibals. It's boring. What if there is a wild ape man who just wanted you gone? Like, he doesn't want to eat you. He just wants you dead so you're not in his property. Tarzan does have a perfect, like, supervillain backstory. Just this wealthy family is shipwrecked in the jungle after a violent mutiny, and they're ripped apart by apes. And the apes raise the boy to be one of them. Someone gets knocked out. They wake up. They think they're being dragged to safety. It's Tarzan dragging them into a quicksand pit. They're tied up in vines. They're just getting dumped into the quicksand. Also, someone gets stepped on by an elephant. I'd watch it. I'd make that pitch. Oh, this is a TGI Fridays. Son of a man, don't you 
And now, on with the show.